Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Larry W. Thank you, Chase. Hi, everybody. I'm Larry W., a recovering compulsive reader. It's really good to be here and see so many uh, smiling faces and recovering compulsive readers. The meetings I go to are, are, tend to be a lot smaller, so it's, uh, uh, it's really great to be here. And I want to thank Walter for asking me to be here. Uh, let's see. I am a recovering compulsive reader. If there's any question about being the compulsive reader part, I do have visual aids here. <laughs> which I can distribute. Uh, as of right now, uh, to help qualify a bit, I'm, uh, I'm down almost, uh, well, about, about 90 pounds over my top weight and have been maintaining that for uh, over two and a half years. But my story goes back uh, to my childhood uh, and growing up, Genetically predisposed, as we say, I do believe that this is a disease, and I'm going to give, as we we give our opinions, and this is going to be a lot of my opinions, and I speak only, of course, for myself. But in my opinion, it is a family disease for some of us. In my case, it was uh, my mother's side of the family were the compulsive overeaters, the drinkers. Uh, my grandmother was apparently. A, a great card player, a poker player, and would take over for my grandfather at the tables back in the Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, and it was that side of the family that seemed to breed the compulsive readers, the alcoholics, etc., etc., etc. And I was a fat kid. That was the first thing. I had that elementary school, and I have all these vivid memories as the fattest kid and you know for the guys more so but growing up in the 50s as I did uh, it was the little league and playing right field you know or second base and I also was burdened in the 50s by being left handed and my father of course thought he was doing me a favor by saying no no you really need to play baseball right handed so I would get my older brother's baseball glove and they would consequently call me wooden arm because I could only throw. I mean, if I get to add it up, how far I could throw right-handed and how far I could throw left-handed, it'd probably be halfway decent. I bowl left-handed, I play basketball left-handed, I write and eat, overeat left-handed, uh, uh, both-handed. But I do uh, play baseball right-handed. I don't know if they do this anymore. We have some elementary school teachers, but growing up, we used to have what they called field day. You know, the sack races and the, the obstacle races. Now, for me, as the shortest, fattest kid in the class, it was anything but a field day. I can never understand why they called it a field day. Because if I come to learn a field day, is every, anything but that. So I grew up as the, you know, the short kid, the fat kid. I grew up in a... Uh, Jewish family, which is cool because I was Jewish, uh, but <laughs> the neighborhood was not. <laughs> in fact, my nickname as a kid, this is in Bridgeport, Connecticut, back in the 50s, there was a cartoonist by the name of Al Cap, who created Lil Abner, and Daisy May and Lil Abner had this little pet, whose name was 
Hamas. It was called Hamas Alabamas. Ham Alabama. It was their pet pig. But my nickname from my parents' friends was Hamas. That's what they called me. So I, I thank you. <laughs> um, at the time, you know, we laugh at a lot of this stuff when we're kids. We think, but we don't really realize how much it hurts, especially when you have both older sibling and younger sibling, because there are lots of things that I learned later on, like in CODA and other meetings about acceptance. Uh, you know, like little funny things, like when my father would say that, you know, there was this girl, Charlotte. Charlotte was her name. Charlotte was the girl in the maternity ward, maternity ward who might actually be their real child. And at any point, they might turn me in and get Charlotte. Um, of course, that had no effect on me growing up. Um, of course, I remember that, you know, something to remember that when you have a younger sibling, you get to play that joke on her, you know, or that one. And so I remembered it sometimes laughingly, ha-ha, but not necessarily calling the apparent pain or rejection when it was my brother doing it to me. Um, so there was lots of stuff. Now, in that non-Jewish neighborhood, being the short fat kid, I got to play Santa Claus, though, every, every Christmas pageant from second grade on. Uh, which was great. It certainly eliminated any possible stage fright, which is, you know, they say the, what does Jerry Seinfeld say? The, the worst fear you have is public speaking, even more than the fear of death, which is, according to Jerry Seinfeld, means that a funeral, uh, uh, you'd rather be the corpse than be giving a eulogy. Where's Johnny? Jerry Seinfeld. In any event, so I did, I, I was the one who got to be the class clown later on. But it was a very lonely, being the fat kid in class was being the lonely kid. Now, in the 50s, I comforted myself, since it couldn't necessarily be through athletics doing well as a baseball player, which growing up in the 50s, every kid wanted to you know, play for the Yankees, except how they played against the Angels the last two days, uh, and ever. Uh, but I relied on, my big thing was rock and roll, 50s rock and roll. And, but I love those songs, and I became a trivia expert. In fact, the only A I got in college was doing a speech on the history of rock and roll. Uh, but I remembered those songs, many 45s that I saw. 45s, by the way, for as I look on them around. <laughs> 45s are like CDs, but they're a little larger and the hold is bigger. Okay, so 45s. So I had the 45s, and the songs I liked back then, from 57, 58, 59... Songs like Lonely Teenager, All Alone Am I, Mr. Lonely, by the Vidal's, not the Mr. Lonely by Bobby Vinton in 1964. I Want to Be Wanted. Uh, these are the songs that I related to. Now, I know everybody probably does, but you know, we say we have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. Now, I'm a big believer in the literature that we have. And that is the big book, uh, and even more so the 12 and 12. The big book being written when people had three years of sobriety versus 1952 and the 12 and 12 was public, published with closer to 17, 18 years of recovery. But the mind of a chronic alcoholic, that concept interests me as it does because that mind was the one that 
made me feel less than despite being more than. That the, those rock and roll songs touched me. Uh, I guess the one, probably the least hit of all the titles I mentioned, was a song from 1960 called The Way of a Clown. I make you laugh when you're blue. That way I can be close to you. From the start, I play the part. While I make you laugh, someone else steals your heart. That's the way of a clown. Everybody, no. Uh, Teddy Randazzo, ABC Paramount, 1960. March of 1960. So here's this 13-year-old fat kid, uh, but always being alone and apart from, mostly, I believe, due to my weight and being that body. Now, that was who I was through elementary school and high school. And I didn't take my first drink uh, until I got into college. It's interesting because this was now my college reunion year, or 40th. And I didn't get to go back uh, to Ithaca this June, but the guys who did took some pictures of the old fraternity house. And this is the stairway. And of all the pictures they took, Stairway, and as you can't see this, I don't know, you walk up these steps because this is the main room, and then the bedrooms for the fraternity were upstairs. But right about this step, it's unbelievable, you know, 40 years later, is when I had my first drink and got high. It was a couple of weeks before my 18th birthday. It was our freshman pledge party. And, you know, we had back then, you know, purple passions, as they called them, among other things. And I got woozy high uh, in February of 1965 and being as I believe genetically predisposed allergic to alcohol this is huge I'm I'm a firm believer in the science that came out 70 years ago with Dr. Silkworth uh, about the phenomenon of craving as it affects not just alcohol but most particularly compulsive overeating most particular, I mean, there's such a small percentage we all see of recovery, sometimes in us, in my own life, in relapses I'll share. Uh, but uh, uh, for me, accepting the fact, you know, sometimes we hear in, uh, around OA rooms, you know, alcohol is easy, you put the plug in the drug, or you th- in the drug, you, you put the tiger in the cage, but in, in, with food we have to take the tiger out for a walk three times a day. I mean, anybody? heard that uh, that kept me from recovering and even kept me in relapse that concept which I now choose to reject I rejected it before then get back into it but I want to try to do this as chronologically as I can here uh, my left brain is <laughs> um, so I had my first drink in February of, of 65 but Pretty quickly, I mean, before I graduated, three years later, I was already having blackouts. I was already getting into car accidents. I was already lying and cheating and doing all the stuff that any other full-blown alcoholic would do with just a couple of years of drinking. Of course, I had many years of genetically predisposed. The, the genetic predisposition, but also all that other stuff that I did and abuse to my body through the eating. But in any event, I did start drinking, and drinking is a part of my story because it's part of my disease and manifestation of the allergy, what I call liquid alcohol, 
when in times I would also choose, even in my sobriety, I would choose the solid alcohol, uh, which is now part of my things I abstain from. And I'll share that as I move forward. Um, so in drinking, I was also fat. And finally I went on a, a diet in, in my sophomore year, lost some weight, finally you know, got contact lenses, which I gave up in my later years. Uh, but it helped my dating. It helped my personality because I, I had lost weight. I looked pretty good in college, but I still drank. And I drank for the better or worst part of 10 years. But in my drinking, after a couple of years, in 1969, uh, teaching school and outside of uh, West Hartford, Connecticut, I went to the first of a series of fat doctors. We called them fat doctors at the time. And I got diet pills. And diet pills in the 60s was speed, basically. And, of course, I took speed and I ate faster. Uh, Where's John? (laughs) Help me out here. (laughs) Uh, Ionamin, Pondamin, uh, Escatrol. I always thought Escatrol was like a Jewish diet pill. <laughs> explain it to the... Uh, the laughers can explain it to the Gentiles. Uh, S is Yiddish for eat, so Escatrol. I don't know. So I took all these pills while I was still drinking, and I lost 50 pounds. I went to this doctor, and this famous women's doctor in West Hartford, Connecticut. She had a book published called The Women's Diet by the Women's Doctor. And she was... Well, she was heavier than me, for one thing. But she, and she was taking shots. But she said, no, you don't need shots, just take the pills. And I took the pills, and I lost weight. I lost 40 pounds. And then I, uh, but I kept drinking. And I put the weight back on. And then in December 7th, I'd be back to see her again. And then I'd do different diet pills. And I, so through 1969, 70, through 75, I went to a series of these doctors. I moved to Indianapolis, and I went to doctors who gave you know, instead of prescriptions, they would give them out at the office. Uh, and it used to be like this doctor used to, like the Crayola 64, you know, the packs of crayons. So they had the orange packet, the blue packet, the green packet. And depending on what time of day, you would take these diet pills. And then I finally did graduate to the doctors that would give me the shots. Uh, and each time I would lose the 40 or 50 pounds, and each time I would put it back on. But my drinking progressed, got even worse. And finally, uh, actually in July of 74, after a 4th of July weekend car crash, uh, I, uh, well, let me back up to December of 73, because that's where my recovery first started. In December of 73, the show after the Tonight Show was called the Tomorrow Show, these network brains that got paid for that. Tom Snyder, who died, I guess, last year, would have the Tomorrow Show. And, and in December of 73, a guest, Tom Snyder had as a guest, Dr. William Rader, the Rader Institute. And he talked about alcoholism uh, as being like a little bit pregnant. There's no such thing. And so that concept about alcoholism fascinated me. And I knew really that I had a drinking problem. This is in December of 73. Uh, and I did what a lot of us who are in pro- trouble do when we hear about that there's a solution. I rushed right out and eight months later went to an AA meeting uh, <laughs> and, in July of 74. And I actually got it for a while. I got a little information. You know, I was probably stayed sober 
for a, a couple of months. Uh, did not change playgrounds or change playmates. I had a friend who managed the restaurant. I remember going into his restaurant in October of 74. And he said, oh, you got to try this bottle of wine. It's a, it's a religious experience. Uh, we all come to learn program things about religious and spiritual experiences, knowing that it certainly was not in that bottle, but that didn't <laughs> stop me from trying. And uh, I did a traditional slip. I had a drink in October, and then I remember even New Year's Eve of 75. I didn't drink till after midnight. It's not like, okay, one bite. And those of you who are familiar with relapse, at least my story, it's not that the one bite and all of a sudden you wake up the next morning 100 pounds heavier. But So I had that slip, and finally, I had the months went by, and finally in July of 75, I did get back to an AA meeting, July 21st of 75, being my AA sobriety date, having just celebrated 33 years of sobriety. Uh, but what I did is, now I, here I am, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, and I'm 20, whatever, 7 years old, 28 years old, and now I can't drink, uh, and I feel bad, and of course I start eating, continue eating, uh, putting on about 60 pounds in my first six months of sobriety, because I stopped taking diet pills, and I knew I couldn't, I couldn't take diet pills for me and be sober, especially the speed. So I put on 60 pounds, and here I am now in sobriety, and I kind of went from seeing little pink elephants to becoming one. Now I'm six, six months over with. Um, and I stayed that way finally for about a year and a half. I uh, actually did go to an OA meeting in North Miami Beach in April of 76. But OA, you know, making amends to people we had harmed? You know, uh, uh, what does that have to do? I'm just a little fat. Uh, but I finally got back in, in November of 76. I met a guy in Atlanta when I was working on a campaign. And he was... Uh, we all celebrated. We all went out to the bar, and, and, I, and here I am, a year and a half sober, 208 pounds, uh, about 60 pounds overweight, and uh, 50 pounds overweight. And this guy says, uh, "I said, no, I don't want to. You know, have a drink. No thanks." He said, "No thanks." They went back to the bar. Uh, I said, "No thanks." He said, "No thanks." And he said, "Don't you drink?" And I said, "No, I don't drink. Uh, I." Uh, I don't, I don't know, I just can't handle it. You know, miserable. Now, again, I'm very upset. There's something about being merely sober. You know, in all the years I've gone to AA meetings, I've never heard the sobriety prayer any more than I've heard the abstinence prayer stated in an, in an OA meeting. It's the serenity prayer. I was sober, but not serene. And ready to go back to diet pills or anything else in my depression over my weight. And, uh, and he said, well, by the way, have you ever tried OA? And I said, yeah, you know, what about those people? What do they know? Anyway, uh, first he said, uh, you, he said, you don't drink. He, I said, no, I don't drink. And he said, well, I don't drink. I stay away from it one day at a time. I said, one day at a time? You're one day at a time? Well, one day at a time. <laughs> and then as we continued to talk for the next day or so, we talked about OA. And I'm munching on a bunch of stuff that someone brought back from a campaign trip in, in San Francisco that they, own, that they have in San Francisco in boxes of 24, uh, half of which I had already consumed. And he said, what about OA? And he said, and I said, anyway, you're not fat. Ha, ha. And he said, well, I've been absent for 
five and a half years. He'd been sober for seven years. And here I was. So I rushed back to North Miami and went to an OA meeting in North Miami Beach, that one that I went to previously, and I got my gray sheet, which I still have, from uh, December of 1976, even though it was supplemented by the blue sheet, uh, and succeeded by dignity of choice. And I... But I went to OA, you know, the old OA as it was back then. I did 30 questions, pretty much the same questions that you'll see in some types of meetings now. Uh, written stuff, way to measure my food. Uh, had a food plan, which at that time was basically, you know, no sugar, no flour, no three meals a day, nothing in between one day at a time. Weighed and measured for that period of time. And... Uh, and it worked. I lost the 50, 50 pounds. I kept it off. I, you know, this is a threefold disease, physical, emotional, spiritual. Now, if I'm only doing the abstinent, the food plan, one out of three is not a passing grade. 33 and a third. We're school teachers, something like that. Back then, there was seven tools of OA. You know, abstinence is one tool. You know, 14.28. Now it's eight tools. You get to say 12.5%. It's a lot easier. Uh, but one tool, abstinence, and even abstinence and meetings on the tools is not a passing grade. Why do I put it that way? Because what happened to me is at some point, I abstained for the better part of 15 years. Uh, I spoke at conventions. Here's the program for the OA World Service Convention in New Orleans in 1990. I did retreats. I was on the board of trustees. Uh, I kept my weight off by sponsoring, by reading, by having sponsors, by going to meetings, by keeping that physical abstinence, which for me is the physical part of the, the disease as it's described by Dr. Silkworth in the doctor's opinion. In AA, they all talk about, often talk about, the first 164 pages, or any AA people in there also, the first 164 pages, well, there's more recovery in the 20 pages before the first 164 pages, because that includes the doctor's opinion. And in the doctor's opinion, he uses a word that I never heard of in AA until I got into OA. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. He uses the word abstinence in the doctor's opinion. That these people, uh, alcoholics of this type, developed the phenomenon of craving whenever they had alcohol in any form whatsoever. Now, I adapted that, as I talked about the tiger in the cage, to my OA. That my abstinence is, as much as anything else, things that alcohol is made of. The vodka, the bread, the vodka, the potatoes, the bread, the grains, the... Uh, sugar and stuff like that. So to me, the physical abstinence, that's why I used the expression before, uh, that I abstain from liquid alcohol and I abstain from solid alcohol. Uh, and we all have our own definition of our abstinence and our diet. Diet is not a dirty word for me. One of the, I used to take credit for this until I looked through some notes that I had when I spoke at a retreat up in, uh, in, in uh, Eugene, Oregon, and I thought I made it up, but then I realized I never made anything up, and that never having an original thought. But the word diet, this guy John from Eugene, Oregon, said diet is very simple to him. Diet, D-I-E-T. Do I eat this? 
And that's what I have to come to grips with. That's my abstinence. Do I eat this? But that's just the physical part of the threefold disease. Physical, emotional, spiritual. Uh, by the way, as I said, I abstained for the better part of 15 years. Then I ate for the better part of 15 years. And I put on 100 pounds. Uh, I now have been uh, absent since uh, December uh, 30th of 2005, two, two years, six, seven months, uh, taking off the better part of 90, well, 90 plus pounds. Um, and what I did to do that was to go back to basics. And I started back to basics by weighing and measuring to like, you know, not that it's rocket science at some point. Uh, for what it's worth, I do not weigh and measure my, or my meals on a, on a regular basis. And I don't give, I hope I don't use that for people who are weighing and measuring to give them permission not to. I once heard a food spoken at a retreat that I was not part of my abstinence. And I swear for two years, I thought about that food. I said, gee, he gets away with it. I wonder if I could get away with it. And, and you know, we have to decide for ourselves. That's why I like, do I eat this? Uh, and there may be things that I eat that other people don't eat. I don't eat Brussels sprouts. You might have more power to it. You like them? <laughs> Go for them. I don't eat them. Um, red potato, sugar, and white flour uh, are the foods. But what happened to me is that abstinence, as I said, the diet, whatever you want to call it, the physical part, that tool, is maybe it's the best, the most important part because it's the first step. Admitted we're powerless over food or certain foods, if that be the case, as you define your own abstinence, that our lives have become unmanageable. Well, for me, uh, by the way, the first step is called the give-up step. That's we give up whatever that substance activity, whatever it is. Uh, But then we get to, I had to realize that beyond that, if it's a threefold disease, physical, emotional, spiritual, what is, you know, people pray for their abstinence. You hear about that? People pray for sobriety. Uh, That's not the way that it's written in the 12 and 12. It doesn't say uh, uh, that the physical, that's why I talk about Abstinence is not the be-all and the end-all. We don't say the abstinence prayer. Sobriety is not the I don't bow at the altar of sobriety or abstinence. I seek out serenity. Now, what's going to, whatever interferes with my serenity would and did get me back into the food in 1994 through 2005, even 1989 when I first slipped. The emotional... Sobriety. Anybody heard this phrase, emotional sobriety? It was in, it's number 288, and as Bill sees it, there's a paragraph called emotional sobriety. Throughout the book, as Bill sees it, there are little excerpts which come from a, a letter that he wrote to a friend who was depressed. And someone handed this to me when I shared how much I like the notion of this concept of emotional sobriety. We know what sobriety, let's call it abstinence, physical abstinence is. We might know what physical, emotional, spiritual. Spiritual Sobriety, if you want to call it that. Being at one with your God. But what is emotional sobriety? Well, first, as Bill Wilson wrote back then, which I had to come back to, he says, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependence and its consequent unhealthy demand. What does all that mean? Well, my relapse was all about bad stuff in my life 
loss of job, loss of money, bad relationship, that I needed to escape over and chose to escape over with food. Why? Because it works. Why does it work? If you believe, as I do, that our brain chemistry is such that, you know, what is alcohol when they say are drugs? Feeling no pain. What does that mean? Feeling no pain. Well, if you believe, as I do, and I've, you know, like Dr. Silkworth wrote, that some of these, the sugars and the white flowers, whatever the substance, uh, affects the same thing. The neuro chemistry, the brain, the transmitters. And, I've, and again, I'm not a scientist. That's why I say it's my opinion. But I've looked at this stuff because it works for me. And if I choose to believe, then I don't get in trouble with walk, taking the tiger out for a cage. Because I believe that, I believe that taking those, that solid alcohol, A, it took away the pain. It took away the pain for 12, 15 years except for the pain that it caused by putting on 100 pounds. So the emotional sobriety had to be, how do I get through the tough times? Well, that's why I go back to the 12 and 12. What are tough times? You know, it says that God, we remove the defects of character. And so I say it's steps 2 and 3 are the look-up steps, but steps 4 through 9 are the clean-up steps through our inventories and our asking to God to remove our defects of character and making amends. What are our defects of character? According to the literature, which I, again, I do buy with the author of the literature, if you will. The literature says that God gives us instincts. You know, like page 69, sex, not to be taken, neither despised nor loathed to be taken lightly. But what happens when the instinct for sex becomes, goes awry, as it says in the 12 and 12? It can turn to lust, for example. Uh, what are our instincts? Food and shelter. That's an instinct. You know, like the Donner Party eating each other, right? Food and shelter. Instinct. But what happens when it, that instinct goes awry? Gluttony. What about our instinct for being with others? You know, security. Emotional security. Our instinct for financial security becomes greed. Our instinct for just being with others becomes our pride, our arrogance. So it becomes, it's listed in the 12 and 12, my version, pages 54 and 55, the seven deadly sins. What are the seven deadly sins? They are the, I don't know, the perversions or those instincts for security, sex, and society gone awry. Paggles. Pride, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, envy, sloth. Those are the seven deadly sins. So what happened to me in my relapse is when you lose the job and then you start pushing or the relationship doesn't work and I needed relief, I needed escape from the relationship, uh, from the pain, from the fear. Uh, and what I did, of course, was to go back to the food because it took away the pain, the brain chemistry. Um, so I have to go beyond what am I... I start with what am I overeating. That's the physical allergy. But I had to realize, what am I eating over? And if I can come to grips with what I'm eating over, that's when I had to then turn to God. Ask God for relief. Take this pain from this relationship away. Take the fear of the financial insecurity away. 
pray to God, wrote ashore, you know, get a job, get a different relationship, get in, get out, whatever that is. But that became my prayer. Not pray for absence, because I did that. In my relapse for the 10, 12 years, I mean, I tried the zone, I tried Optifast, uh, I tried uh, uh, FanFan. I did everything but get back to basics, which I finally did in 2005. Uh, and that became the start of my, the restart of my physical abstinence, but now I have to realize on a day-to-day basis. But I go back to how I, I mentioned Dr. Rader before. I also read an article in Ms. Magazine about an, uh, an alcoholic, and I saw a PSA uh, with Dane Andrews about alcoholism, and I realized that I got into recovery through the media. So, and John and I talked about this before. So ultimately what I did, I started last year uh, a recovery talk network. And bringing on people with my, as Larry W., anonymously, bringing on people from 12-step programs or authors or clinicians to do what I would hope did for me, to let people in the general public, instead of we're always talking to ourselves, to hear about that there is a solution, which is the title of my radio show, which I obviously stole from Chapter 2 of the big book, which also was a, an OA conference here, the, the title of an OA uh, convention back in, in 89. There is a solution. So to help carry that message, because ultimately, uh, I believe my message of recovery and of relapse is that there is a solution, that this program works for people having trouble with uh, food, as I did, that getting out of the food meant for me, do I eat this, keeping abstinent with by abstaining from certain foods. Um, all right, so I'll just do my... Like, the 12 steps in 10 words. Uh, step one, as I mentioned, is give up when, we, when we we're powerless over the food. Uh, steps two and three, we came to believe. We make a decision to turn our lives. Those are the look-up steps. Steps four through nine, between our inventories, giving it away, asking the, to remove our defects of character, making amends. Four through nine are the clean-up steps. In 10 and 11, our daily inventory, uh, seeking through prayer and meditation to find knowledge of God's will for us, those are keep up. And then in step 12, by carrying, trying to carry the message, that's show up. Uh, give up, look up, clean up, keep up, show up. And as I heard from a newcomer in the back of the room the last time I gave this, they said, okay, now shut up. And I will. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. I guess we do have a couple of minutes if there are such things as questions. Uh, uh-huh. Um, I like what you said about the uh, seven deadly sins being perversion of, you know, what a regular natural thing is. Well, I look at this dealing with society, so procrastination. You know, we're supposed to have healthy relationships with others. Uh, the 12 and 12 calls it security, sex, and society are the three instincts. So, uh, I put it under society. When you're dealing with others, if you're missing deadlines or putting things off, you're not being good to yourself, maybe to your, in my case, to my family or whatever, by my procrastination or by my sloth. Anybody else? Any questions? Oh. 
you, you said something about where you're, you're facing financial insecurity or job insecurity, yeah. and you said something, I didn't quite catch you, instead of eating or drinking, how do you overcome that? Well, it's the pray to God and row this shore is uh, maybe sending out resumes. I mean, it so happens I'm in a very difficult situation now because for the last year plus, I've had this radio network and then the funding stopped. So I'm faced now with that sort of financial insecurity. So, you know, looking for grants or getting out, knocking on doors, putting resumes out, trying to get a job, networking. It's not just, okay, you know, no offense to the secret, even those who follow the secret know that it's more than the thoughts. It's the actions, you know. Uh, faith without works is dead. So if it's, whatever the problem is, you know, if the problem is, is, is money, you know, get a job. If the problem is a relationship, get in one, get out of one. I mean, that's flip, and I don't mean to minimize it because I've been in the pain that those things cause. But it's not merely, God, you know, help me. Well, no, God, help me out of the pain. Well, you want to get out of the pain, then find a solution. That's how I look at it. Anybody else? Um. Thank you for your share. Um, you talked about um, the seven notes of the relationship. I wanted to ask you, because in the, the top of King 64, the big one, the top anonymous, you talked about the liquor was the symptom. Yeah. In our case. Exactly. We had to get down to causes and conditions. Can you talk, please, a little bit about what your experience was with getting down to the conditions? Uh, absolutely. Um, this is again also out of the 12 and 12. If I can find it quickly enough. Yes, the page, Mike, again, page 54. This is all this stuff. Our twist, but it is from our twisted relations with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. Uh, the primary fact we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Our egomania digs disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist on dominating people we know or depend too heavily on them. So this has to do with uh, it's our relationships. So that's what it says is the cause of our destructive drinking or eating. Our inability to form partnerships with others. How do we do that? You know, anger. I mean, it, it, that's that's the cause, and that's what I did in my relapse: getting angry over jobs. You know, getting promoted, being selected manager of the year, and the next year the company decided to get a, get off that division. You know, divest itself of that division. So I could be angry and resentful, and I was, or I could say, okay, so what? Now what? Which is kind of what I have to do. Okay, thank you.